Our scripture for tonight is Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, to salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has, what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. One of the things we tell our kids, um, Henry and Pierce specifically, they tend to fight and get into little disputes and arguments. And um, recently, Henry, tends to be the aggressor, um, threw a toy and it ended up hitting Pierce in the head. Not going well. And one of the things we always tell them is they need to forgive each other and say sorry. And Betsy likes to use the phrase with them, you don't have to like him, but you have to love him. And so he t- tells this to our kids all the time. And uh, I, I remember Pierce came home from school, and uh, one of the other kids um, ended up tripping him at recess. And he was he had, he had a scar on his face. He was really sad. And he said, I, like, I could tell he was like recounting the situation, telling me about it as we're walking from school. And he says, Dad, I have to be honest. I really don't like him, but I'll try to love him. To which I was like, that's my boy. Um, in a bit in the same way, this message, um, I think Jesus is, in a sense, saying to this church, I don't really like you, um, but I do love you. In fact, this is the only letter we get where there is no encouragement. The only encouragement in this letter is uh, the fact that he loves them. That's about it. Uh, it's, a spirit of, it's a letter with the spirit of discipline, okay, similar to, to a few other churches that we have read about. In this letter, Jesus says, I love you, and because I love you, that is why I'm bringing such a harsh rebuke. If you remember, he said to this church, you are wretched, you are uh, blind and naked. Um, He has a very harsh tone when speaking to this church. Um, Some of these churches that we've been reading about have uh, some strong rebukes. I have here a map, and if you notice, we've journeyed all the way from starting in Ephesus followed the path all the way to the final church, which is Laodicea. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, all of these letters, uh, in a sense, have actually been building up to this final letter. And I think the way Jesus ends this letter is very important and profound. Uh, he reminds this church from the beginning that he loves them, but then he brings in some very strong correction for where he sees they are going. Um, we'll read here in verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We see Jesus and many of the other letters do this, where he speaks in the third person. 
and he often gives names for himself. In this case, he says he is the amen, who is the amen, which uh, the word amen is is a confirmation of God's promises. It's a so be it, let it be so. That's what amen means. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who is, let it be so. And then he gives two words to describe himself, which are uh, faithful and true. If you remember last week, it was holy and true. Okay, we talked about the, the importance of Jesus, in fact, being truth and why that matters then and why it matters now in a similar way. Him being faithful and true means that he is guiding this church during very uncertain times. He also calls himself the ruler of God's creation. Okay, the word ruler he used here is the Greek word arche, which is, if you ever heard the term archetype or um, architect, all that comes from that root word. Um, he is the one who is the ruler over all creation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit exist before time exists itself and rule over creation. And now we have Laodicea. We need to talk about Laodicea. This begins, uh, the name was named after uh, Antichus II, actually named it after his wife, who I'm sure he didn't know this at the time, but eventually would divorce that wife and many other wives. Um, but the name stuck, her name was Laodis, and the name Laodicea stuck with them. Um, you know, if you remember back a few weeks, we talked about the church in Smyrna. If you notice, they're a bit of the inverse of this church. Okay, Smyrna was the church where Jesus said to them, I know you are poor, but you're actually rich, meaning that in there, their lack, in, in the sense that they did not have material possessions like many of these other cities, that they were actually rich in spirit. In this case, it's the opposite, right? Jesus notes them for their wealth, their extravagant wealth, and he says, I see what you have, and because of that, you are actually poor. And so understand Laodicea was the wealthiest of these seven cities, and we'll talk about why in a minute. Um, that kind of helps form an important backdrop to understanding it. There's really five reasons uh, to, to, to look into what was going on with Laodicea. The first is that Laodicea was a financial center, okay? Uh, they were another group that minted their own coins. This was one of the main reasons for why they became such a financial powerhouse, because they were creating their own coins, um, which is essentially like creating your own wealth. They were the fashion center So of all the cities, okay, they were kind of like the New York, right? They were the fashion center uh, of their time. And the reason for that was because they had black sheep, which is interesting because we think of black sheep like everyone has a black sheep in their family, right? That's kind of a a, a term we use. But in this case, the black sheep was a very special type of wool. It created this beautiful and extravagant type of clothing. In fact, there was a tunic. I'm going to say this wrong, called the Trimeteria. I probably messed it up. But it was a very famous type of tunic that was sold all throughout the land. All the cities were were pining for this one tunic. And so because of that, it created enormous wealth. The third that made Laodicea special is that they were a center for health care. In fact, one of the things that they had discovered and created was a certain type of eye drop. Okay, so they were like the optometry in the ancient world, a place where you could get eye care, and they would put this sort of salve, the solution in your eye that could cleanse your eye, whether you were uh, unable to see or you had an infection in your eye. They were the leading place. People would travel miles and miles and miles to go get medical treatment 
in Laodicea. Fourth, it was an education center. So this was like um, a place where people would get trained in the medical field and then go out and start their own practice. So they had all the medical professionals, the ones who were uh, experts in their fields, and they would train people to then go out and do medicine. And lastly, uh, it was an entertainment center. You got a picture here of one of the, they had two major coliseum types. Theater, they would have gladiator games. Um, they would have all kinds of things in these giant arenas. So you've got a place that was a center for wealth. You've got a place that was uh, a center for fashion, for healthcare, for training medical professionals, and for entertainment. Hopefully, this paints you a little bit of a picture and it helps you understand that Laodicea had the it factor. This was the place you wanted to live. They had a reputation. They had a certain image that they uh, projected. I, I'd imagine it would be like in modern day where the social media influencers would want to live, right? Hashtag Laodicean life. That was lame. Um, but that's kind of what's going on, right? They, they had this place. It's the, it's the place you wanted to be, the place that had the it factor. Um, it was an exciting city. The city was thriving. Uh, but there was one major downside, one thing about this city that was a huge problem. That was the water issue. For one, there wasn't a local water source. So Laodicea had to get creative in order to get water into the city. Um, you have to understand, in order to really understand why this is an issue, you have to understand that there was actually three cities. There's kind of like, a, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, we have the Twin Cities, right? You have St. Paul and... Anybody know? Minneapolis, very good. All right, those are the twin cities. Um, this is kind of like the tri-cities. I got a picture here to kind of show you. You had Heropolis up to the north, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae is, yes, the church uh, that Paul writes to, the Colossians, okay? And each of these cities sort of had to work together in order to exist because each city had something the other needed. Um, so at in Colossae, okay, Colossae is actually at the foot of Mount Cadmus, which was a, a, a huge mountain that was covered with snow. It was like snow-capped mountains. Um, and nine months out of the year, these mountains would be snow-covered, which meant the water that would flow from the mountain was pure, was fresh, was, was clean, and was ice cold. But then you have six miles to the north, Heropolis, a very different type of water source. They were the hot spring destination. I don't know if you've ever visited a hot springs, but it is a, essentially, I've got a picture here, I think. Yeah, you can see this is a beautiful picture. This is modern day. The same springs that existed then are still around. You can still visit it today. Um, war, it's like, it's like a, a, a natural hot tub, right? This is where people would go for medicinal healing. People would go here uh, just to relax and enjoy and, and vacation, if you will. Um, and if you notice, there's that white stone, that white stone all around it um, is a, it's basically calcified minerals. Uh, the, the term used for what it's created is called travertine. Okay, they still have it's, it's very. A lot of people will use this uh, for like uh, re kitchen remodels today. You'll see people will use that kind of stone to create uh, countertops and whatnot. And so you've got two different places. One of them creates hot water. One of them creates cold water. Now, if you were to go today oops, to the ancient city of 
Laodicea. Okay, it's in ruins now, but if you were to stand in the ruins, you could see both modern-day Colossae and modern-day Hierapolis, just standing there. So you can imagine if you lived in the city of Laodicea and you received this letter from Jesus, it's going to take on a very specific meaning. And so when we read it again, you're going to see some things that, oh wait, this wasn't just a random word from Jesus, but he is speaking very specifically to the context in which he is writing to. He says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. You can maybe see the significance there. I wish you were one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So one of the other challenges here was that Laodicea was five miles away from their water source. And so in order to get the water there, um, they had to get, it was five, like five miles of traveling water through these Roman aqueducts, which you can imagine not only is going to be heated up by the sun as the water would go, but also five miles of gathering filth and sediment until the water finally lands. It's lukewarm. It is not refreshing and cold like in Colossae. It is not the medicinal hot water that you have to the north. And uh, a quick way to remember this, I, I was just thinking about this as I was, I was working on this. Colossae starts with C, which is cold. Hierapolis starts with H, which is, hot, which is hot. And Laodicea is L, which is lukewarm. Easy way to remember it. Now, the sediment and residue from the five miles uh, actually made the water even dangerous to drink. So the water would finally get there. It would be lukewarm. It would be dangerous to drink. And it's no surprise that actually the word used here, it says when Jesus would spit it out, that word is more accurately translated to vomit. So it is, a, like, it is like an absolute natural response to the bad taste, to the, to the grossness of the water, that it was an involuntary response to it. I have a memory that this, this, this drew up for me when I was a child. I was at my aunt's house, and she had on her table a bowl of apples, and these were fresh. They had an apple tree, and so they had these this apples all in a, in a bowl, and I would always grab one as a snack and take a big bite into it. And as a kid, I'm not really paying too close of attention to the apple I'm biting into, but I remember biting into it, and it being a rotten, worm-filled apple. And yes, I vomited immediately. It was the most disgusting thing, and I still have this vivid memory. It's horrifying. Um, that is a little bit of what is being described here. It is an automatic response. The moment that water hits, it is spit out. It is an immediate and gross spit of filth. And in the same way, this church was a little bit like a rotten piece of fruit. They projected a certain image. And on the surface, you may think, wow, they've got it put together. But inside, there was rot. And Jesus is speaking this word of correction because this rot was going to lead to death. So now we all can agree that cold is good and hot is good, but lukewarm is terrible. Um, Oftentimes when this text is taught, it is taught in a way that says the goal here or what this church is, is, or Jesus is trying to tell this church that you need to be hot on fire for God right? That it's, it's an appeal to our hearts that we need to be rallied and we need to be excited and not sort of lukewarm or apathetic. But the problem with that teaching is that it actually takes Jesus's words and doesn't consider them fully. Because Jesus says, you can be hot or you can be cold. 
It's lukewarm that I despise. And so we understand this metaphor to mean that in, in, in this ancient world, the cold water was, in fact, refreshing and delicious. The hot water was medicinal, and the lukewarm water is worthless. Jesus is contrasting the state of the church. He says, I'd rather you be refreshing or healing, but not lukewarm. Later in the, in the verse, he does challenge them to be more passionate. In verse 19, he says, so be earnest and repent. Okay, and that word earnest in the King James is actually translated to uh, zealous, okay, which is passionate in a sense. Uh, but the key to understanding this metaphor is actually in the first part. What does Jesus say? He says, I am watching what you're doing, and I don't like it. His words specifically are, I know your deeds, and you are neither hot nor cold. The word deeds means work or labor. I'm watching what you are doing. I'm seeing your works, and they are neither hot or cold. Verse 17 says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Do you notice, do you see it now, what Jesus is referring to in those three things? He mentions gold refined in the fire. This was a city that minted their their own coins. He says white clothes. This was a city known for black clothing, right? He's directly speaking to the specific cultural references in their city. He says salved out in your eyes. Again, Jesus is speaking to the place where this new salvant was created and was helping heal people. And he says, I am rich. He quotes him. He says, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. I'm actually going to go back there real quick. I'm going to show you this passage. If you notice here, he says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Notice Jesus puts this in quotes. He says, You say, I am rich, but have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. A little history lesson regarding Laodicea. In 26 AD, they were not rich. They were not this wealthy epicenter. Um, in fact, they were one of the 10 other cities in Asia Minor that was uh, it, it sort of battling to construct a temple for the Emperor Tiberius. If you remember, the Emperor Tiberius this is 26 AD, so Jesus is still on the earth at this point. And they are, these cities are battling because they want to be the ones to have the honor to build this temple. Well, the Laodiceans actually lose this privilege to the church in Smyrna. And the reason they lost it was because they actually rejected Laodicea because they did not have enough resources, which is kind of ironic when you consider who they are later. I think, and some other scholars I've read have this opinion, that the reason they rose to this this sort of um, economic prominence is because they had a chip on their shoulder. They were so upset about not winning out to build this temple that for the next 40 years, they really began to grow. Uh, in, in 60 AD, we talked about this last week, but there was that massive earthquake. And Laodicea was the only city to turn down funds from the empire. So Rome offered to help rebuild the city, and Laodicea said no. They were too stubborn. It was almost as if they said, 
I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Now, this letter is filled with references to Laodicea's privilege and wealth, to their prosperity, to the ways in which they have this image of who they are. Um, It's a challenge to a wealthy church that has not leveraged their resources to further God's kingdom. They haven't been generous. Jesus is saying, you are blind to your greed. Uh, The word rich here is the Greek word uh, plusius. This shows up multiple times actually in a letter written that Paul wrote to Timothy. So I want to pull that up real quick. Give me just one quick second. Okay, so this is 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Paul writes, command those who are rich. That's that word there, same word used. In this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. (coughs) Excuse me. So who is this text addressing? Specifically, it's addressing that word, plusius, the rich. And and my guess is, and and as this relates to us, I think probably many of us, we, we consider ourselves somewhere in the middle. We know people who are less well-off financially than us. We know people who are much more wealthy than us. Um, let me try to break this down so that we can kind of, I think we can have a level playing field here as we talk about these things. A recent Gallup poll said that the average American thinks that if you make 150 k a year, that means you are rich. But I would guess that if you were to ask someone who makes 150 k a year if they were rich, they would likely say no. You see, what happens often is when you make a certain amount of money that puts you in a certain social status and you tend to hang around around people of a similar social status, and so when you're comparing, you're comparing to people who have maybe three times as much as you or five times as much as you. And this survey actually demonstrates this. They they then surveyed those who made 30K a year and they asked them, what is rich? They said, people who make 75K a year is rich. And I bet if you were to ask those who make 75K a year, especially depending on where they live, if they were rich, my guess is they would say no. A few years ago, um, Money Magazine asked people how much they, they need to be rich, and the answer from their subscribers was $5 million in liquidated ac- liquid assets. So what is the number? <laughs> what is rich? Is it $5 million? Is it 150K? Is it, is it 30K? According to globalrichlist.com, if you earn more than $3,200, $500, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. If you make $33,000 a year, you are in the 1%. If you own a car, then you are in among the 8% of the world. 92% of the world may look at you and say, you indeed are rich. Some experts say that in order to provide water, health, food uh, for the poor, the entire world would cost maybe 20 to, 30 billion year, uh, 20 to 30 billion a year, which is close to what Americans spend on fast food alone. Okay? And so I think hopefully this helps paint a little bit of a picture that when Jesus is writing, or, and Paul is writing to the rich, in the same way that Jesus is talking to the rich, I think we could all say to some level that we, in fact, are 
rich. We have been given by, by essentially where we grew up, where we live, how we live. We, in fact, have been blessed as people who are rich. And what Jesus commands is he actually doesn't say being rich is bad. In fact, if you remember the passage of Revelation, he says, for those of you who have things, who, who, who have wealth, you are to enjoy what God has given you. Right? He's not condemning being rich. He's actually getting at something much deeper. Jesus' command to people who are rich in the world is not to be arrogant. It's not to put wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. I think if there is ever a time where we should be careful and hesitant to put any hope in wealth, it's following year like 2020, where there was so much uncertainty not just financially. I mean, yes, the market was all over the place. There was fear of economic collapse. There was all kinds of questions related to that, but not just in that. And just in life in general, there was an uncertainty about how we'd go and live our everyday life. These words speak directly into uncertain times. Where do you put your hope? Where do you put your security, your comfort, and your purpose? I think we have an illusion of control. Right? Money can sometimes do that. And if our security in this world is of material wealth, if we put our faith in something other than God, then that is idolatry. And Jesus is speaking directly into this idolatry in the city of Laodicea. And I think that's a word for us as well. But as I said, you know, Jesus doesn't say, um, don't be wealthy. Verse 17 says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He wants you to enjoy what you have, and he's the one who's provided it. There's the key difference, okay? It's a, a, much of it is a posture of our heart towards what God has gifted us with, whether it's our home, our vehicles, um, uh, the way God has blessed uh, our, our investments, right? We trust that all good gifts are, in fact, gifts from God himself. But God also knows the human heart, he knows what, what wealth can do. It can absolutely cause us to go blind and to be unable to see a, a sin that can creep into our lives so sneakily, right? This is what greed can often do because it's, it's often looked at by society as, as, not, as almost a social positive. If you are wealthy, people look up to you. But oftentimes, as Jesus warns again and again, when that becomes an idol, it becomes an incredible danger to the soul. So Jesus says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Uh, for those who fall into the category of the rich, which as we've laid this, this playing field, I think all of us to some extent fall into that category, two things here. Be generous and be grateful. To be generous, not just with our money and our resources, but with our time. To give, of, uh, to give of ourselves. Pastor Stan often says, Eastminster is at its best when it gives of itself freely, asking nothing in return. And second, to be grateful, to, to practice a heart of gratitude for what God has given. Verse 19, in this way, sorry, verse 9 from, from this, yeah, 19. Uh, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves, a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. This word life is the same word that's used when Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, 
right? Jesus calls us to a greater life. When we did a, uh, we brought in a consulting group to sort of scope out our local demographics around East Wichita. And one of the things that they concluded was that a majority of the people who live around here would say they have a good life. That was one of the common phrases that we would hear. We have a good life. What Jesus calls us to is not simply to live a good life. Jesus is calling us to something far greater. Jesus is calling us to truly live. Verse 19, back to our passage in Revelation. It says, those who I love and rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. He says, from those I love, I rebuke and discipline. I shared this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's similar to a way, if you, ever, if you ever talk to an adult who in their childhood was neglected by their parents, rarely do they say, oh, I'm so grateful that my parents gave me all that freedom. Right? Usually it's, no, where, where were you when I needed structure? Where were you when I needed some, some uh, uh, accountability in life and discipline? Um, there's a certain level of love that we understand that when God rebukes, when God brings correction, he is doing it out of a genuine love and care for his church and for his people. And so we talk about Jesus often being full of grace and also full of truth, right? One of our values at Eastminster is high grace and high truth. And this statement is absolutely a statement of high grace and high truth. What does he say? He says, I stand at the door and I knock, here I am. You've heard my correction. You've heard my rebuke. But I am here. I am waiting. I've extended an invitation. And then what does he say? If you open it, I'll come and eat with you. I'll spend time with you. I want to be with you. I'm here. But in the same way that Jesus made the rich young ruler sad and walked away because of his, he was blinded by his wealth. I think in a similar way, if you're familiar with that story, when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler, it's almost as if Jesus knocks on the door. He says, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything and give it to the poor. And the man refuses to come and open the door, and instead he walks away sad. I think in a similar way, Jesus is extending that invitation for us to look honestly about the ways in which idolatry has crept into our life and says, here, I'm, I'm knocking. I want, I want in. But you have to accept the invitation. Life in the kingdom of God is an invitation. In the ancient Ro- Roman world, soldiers could barge into anyone's house. They could break down the door, run in. They could grab whatever they wanted, their, their, your possessions, your food. They could take your children. They had ultimate authority. And Jesus is painting a different picture here. He said, I'm not going to barge in and take everything. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking, which is interesting because in the previous week, do you remember Jesus says there is an open door, right? In this case, Jesus is knocking on the door. He's saying, hey, Laodiceans, those who are rich, I am here. I am ready. Let me in. Now, in closing, I think it's helpful to draw a few parallels. I think Eastminster is a church that can relate to this, as as many churches can. 
Um, we live in a city that, by all standards right now, is economically growing, is booming, is, is spreading out. Um, we have good health care. We, we live on the east side of Wichita, which is a place where there is a lot of, well, you know, a place is doing well when, like, Lululemons are popping up everywhere. And so I feel like we're, we're in a place where um, there's certainly a, a uh, you could say that we are a, a rich people. Um, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's, it's more so a reality of where we live. And our church is a generous church. That's one of the things that when the consultant came in, they told us, they said, your church bi- biggest gift is that they are generous, which is why one of our, one of our values at Eastminster is that we um, have, we're, we call it generous responsibility, meaning that we are going to, gen- ge- uh, generosity is the qualifier, right, of responsibility. We are going to be responsible with our finances. We're not going to uh, spend money in excess. You know, we did this $1.7 million campaign, which may sound like a big number, I'll tell you something. I think this church could have doubled that. But there was a question. The elders said, what is responsible for us right now? What do we, what do we need and what, do, what are things that uh, we really uh, need in this season? And I think that that value certainly permeates among our people. That said, I think the temptation to fall into the trappings of the rich, the wealth that Jesus is warning against are always going to be a temptation, especially among our people. We're reminded, and Jesus reminds us, that even though you might be rich, actually, you may actually be poor in a negative way. What he uses very strong language, blind, naked, etc. And so he says, here I am, I am knocking on the door. Open the door. I want to give you true life, better than the good life you think you have. I want to give you a greater life, a fuller life of knowing what it means to love, follow, and become like me. I want to put salve on your eyes so you can see, so the blindness you have from your idolatry begins to fade away. And you know what the outcome of opening the door is? I get to share a meal with you. I get to be with you. I get to deeply commune with you and share my throne, right? So that, that those two things that are said in the passage, share a meal and to share the throne. That's a spiritual intimacy and spiritual authority, Right? Those two things will then be bestowed upon you. Um, in closing, a couple quotes. Jim Elliott said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The word from Jesus is both a rebuke, but it's also an invitation. He's knocking on the door. He asked us three things. Buy gold from me, right? I think Jesus would say to the church in Eastminster, I have trusted you with much. I have given you with a beautiful building and a new renew campaign renovation. I have given you much. Now is a time for you to give generously and give yourself away for my sake. And that's not just money. That's also our time that's our willingness to serve our church community. That's our willingness to be a part of the mission that we're on here in Wichita. Some of you are going to be giving your time tonight. I thank you for, after the service, hopefully helping us out, pack those Thanksgiving boxes. That's an act of generosity. I know that many of you have probably given um, with your checkbooks or, or credit cards to fund these meals that are going to be going out and helping those who are in need. 
Um, this is part of what it means to be the people of God. It means going out of our comfort zones into the city and, and to be a, a vessel to help people who desperately need help. Um, the second is to be earnest, right? And the other translation is zealous. It's in verse 19. Uh, to keep your heart from drifting into lukewarmness. I think that requires a proactivity. We went through a whole series on practicing the way of Jesus. That is a proactive approach to, to participating in the life of Christ and to become more like Christ in the way of formation. And in the same way, that I think is a great way to avoid falling into this lukewarm reality. Um, lastly, to repent and to open the door. We repent of the ways when our wealth and comfort and security become the most important things, when they blind us to other realities, to those who are in need around us. And I, I, I want to close by asking a couple questions that I think help reveal this in us. These are from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He asks these questions. One is this, what thing, if you lost it, would almost mean that you would lose all will to live? And then he asks the second question. What thing lost God from your life would mean that almost all value and significance, identity and worth would be drained out of your life? I think if we can honestly answer those questions, what is that thing in our life that if we lost it would truly, truly drain our meaning and purpose? I think if we can answer those honestly, we can begin to get after some of the root of our own idolatry. It's in the way that our loves, as St. Augustine said, can become disordered, right? That ways in which things that, that we know should be take primacy, should be most important in our life, get out of whack. That's when that begins to split. Um, there's, a, there's a great expression of this in C.S. Lewis's uh, radio show. One of his last lines in his radio show, he said this, and it's such a great quote. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel a sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I can find myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I believe that Jesus is reminding us that we are indeed made for another world. But he's also saying that in this world now, here, exactly where you are, there is an invitation. I am standing, knocking on the door. I want you to enter into the kingdom of God here. The time has come. Don't wait. Don't delay. Whatever's in the way, whatever you're holding that's holding you back, push that aside because I am here waiting for you to accept the invitation. Jesus is knocking, and the question is, will you open it? For those who have ears to hear, let them hear the words of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God full of grace and full of truth. We thank you that you extend the invitation as you, as you are standing at the door and knocking. And I pray for any of us who sense the Spirit's conviction in our life, where idolatry has been revealed, I pray that we would not simply go idly by and, and, and pretend that we didn't hear it or push it aside, but that we would respond. Lord, this is a hard word, and we recognize that tonight. Sometimes your word speaks correction. It speaks difficult things. It speaks rebuke. It brings on 
uh, a hard lesson, and, and I pray tonight that we wouldn't shy away from that, but rather we would lean into it. We would lean into the, the hard things in life, the ways in which we're challenged, the ways in which you ask deep questions to our soul that make us wrestle. And I pray that in the midst of it, Lord, your presence would be near. We thank you that you're a God of mercy, a God who wants to dine with us, wants to have a meal with us, a God who extends this invitation of love. As a loving father does, disciplines us not out of anger, but instead out of mercy and love because we are your children. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.